was in church from the time I was nine months before I was born. I was in church, uh, at least in my mom's womb. Uh, and uh, we were raised in such a way that um, <clears throat> we never discussed whether we were ever going to church or not. That was just an understood thing. We lived that way. And um, my mom and dad <clears throat> believed in, uh, in spanking their children. And, uh, amen, we all probably get back to that. Uh, the day we live, we certainly can see that. And uh, how many of you all grew up with parents like that? You got whoopings, and then there were sometimes you got whoopings, and there was a difference. And uh, I know I can relate to the whoopings and the whoopings both. And uh, how many of you remember the very last one you ever got in your life? You remember the last one you ever got? Not, not too many of you. Some of you do. <laughs> it was memorable, wasn't it? I'll tell you. I uh, I grew up in, uh, you know how you are as you're a young man, you, you get to where, you know, when you become a teenager, you learn everything, right? I mean, just from the time you turn 12, from the time you were 12 till you turned 13, uh, I mean, the Encyclopedia Britannica just filled your mind, all of the philosophers filled your mind, um, all of the uh, legal and uh, logical and justice uh, things of what's right and wrong all filled your mind, and you just were perfect and knew it all by the time you were 13, Right? Uh, at least that's the way we feel. And um, I, uh, I had a bad habit when I was a kid. I, I was one of those uh, hyperactive type people who you would think would learn after the first whipping, or at least after the 10th or 15th whipping, you would learn. And I just didn't. I continued to, to do things, and, and not rebelliously, just mischievously, just could not. Uh, I, my brain would, would speak before it would think. You ever, you ever done that before? And um, one of the things I had a trouble with was uh, being smart. And every once in a while, Mom would say something, and I would, I would be smart, and we'd laugh sometimes if it was something that we were joking about anyway. The problem is there were times that she was serious, and I did that. And that was not the good thing to do. And uh, so I got a lot of whippings growing up. Never forget the last one I ever got. I was... Uh, 17, almost 18 years old at the time. I was, I was uh, there helping my dad work on the, the house that we were building for my mom at the time. And uh, he was out working on the balcony. And uh, my mom told me, I don't remember what it was, to, to, it doesn't even really matter, to empty the trash or something. And I, I, I smarted off. I said something, trying to be funny. I loved my mom. I wouldn't really wasn't trying to be rebellious. I, I think I know that in my heart. It wasn't a rebellious thing. It was just trying to be funny, trying to be a cut-up. And made a comment, a smart comment. And uh, that was the wrong thing to do, let me tell you. <laughs> she said, go to your room. I'm 17 years old. I'm almost a full-grown man, you know. And here's my mom telling me to go to my room. I'm getting ready to head off to college. She said, your dad will be in there in a few minutes. My dad came in there, as he did so many other times, he sat down, and we discussed what had happened. And uh, he told me that he was going to uh, give me a spank and whip him again. Pulled his belt off, you know, the one, the one that was about two inches thick and leather. And, you know, you heard that coming through the belt loops and just sent chills down your back, you know. And uh, he pulled that belt off. I was 17 years old. I was, at that point, very athletic. I loved playing sports. I was the physical... Uh, Specimen of a, of a fella, like kind of like I am now, and <laughs> not at all like I am now. But I could outrun my dad. I'll be real honest with you. 
If I didn't want to get a whipping, I didn't have to get a whipping. I wouldn't have been sleeping at the house that night. But I could have escaped it. I could have left it. I was strong enough. I probably could have resisted my dad. I think I really could have at that point. I think I could have kept from doing it. He told me, he said, Greg, I'm going to give you a belt. He said, I want you to bend over the bed there. 17 years old. You know how humiliating that is? To willingly bend over the bed and let your dad give you a whipping. 17 years of age. I mean, I knew everything. I bent over that bed and my dad gave me a whipping and tears began to pour. I'll be real honest with you. The belt hurt, but long ago I had quit crying over stuff like that. I could handle that. That wasn't a big deal. But it bothered me that I had hurt my mom and dad. It, it hurt me to the core. I got done with that whipping and I stood up. And after we had prayed together, I hugged my dad's neck. And I said, Dad, thank you for the way you and Mom have raised me. I know a lot of 17-year-olds that could have easily stood up and gotten mad and said, no, you're not doing that to me. I'm not, I'm not going through that. But I wanted, to, I wanted to share with my dad that even though there was some chastening, even though there was some things that he had to correct in me, I loved him for it because I knew that he did it for my best interest. And I knew that he did it because he loved me and wanted me to turn out right, wanted me to be the right kind of person. Oftentimes when God brings correction into our life, we bristle at it. Do any of us really like correction? I mean, the truth is none of us like to to be corrected, do we? There are times when I come to Scripture and I read Scripture, I really don't like what it tells me. But I'm thankful for it. There are times I've sat in preaching services and I've heard preachers get up and preach and the Holy Spirit does something where He he pricks your heart. It's amazing when He does, there's this little faucet in there sometimes that controls these little water droplets that come out your eyeballs. You begin to weep. You don't like that. You think, boy, I don't, I don't like the fact that the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction. But I'm thankful for it. We live in a day where I'll be real frank with you that true conviction of the Holy Spirit of God is not tolerated by even many of God's people anymore. When God brings conviction to our hearts, oftentimes our response to that is we bristle. We, we, we say, I, I'm not going to listen to that. I, I don't want to have to be told those things. We oftentimes walk out of the door of a church building. We say, who was that preacher to think he could preach something like that? And all God wanted to do was help us to become better. And all God wanted to do was to help draw our hearts closer to Him. And how we respond to the correction of God oftentimes will indicate where our hearts are as far as our love for Him. We sang that song a moment ago, Oh, how I love Jesus, because He first loved me. And yet at the first sign of God correcting us, 
we tend to run from it. We tend to get angry over it, or we like to use this word in the day we live, I'm offended. That's rampant. I wish they'd take that word out of our dictionary, to be honest with you. Look with me, if you will, in Revelation 2. John is writing a message from God. God Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, has spoken these things through John to these angels of the churches. There are seven churches that are listed here. We're going to look at a couple of them today. Verse number 1, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy... What's the next word here? Works. It says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and has found them liars, and has borne, and has patience, and for my name's sake has labored, and has not fainted. We read all of this, and God is very, very commending to the church at Ephesus. There's a lot of things that He brags on them about and says, Boy, I'm glad you are doing these things. He begins by saying, I know thy works. And then he begins to list many of those things that were included under that. He says, I understand uh, the, your patience, your labor. I know thy patience, thy labor. He talks about not bearing them which are evil. He talks about uh, bearing. He says, I, verse number 3, Thou hast borne the idea of, under persecution that they have withstood, they have uh, been steadfast, and hast patience. And for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted, and I'll be real frank with you. As I read these words, I look, at, I look at good, solid, Bible-preaching churches of this day. And I think, boy, that's a, that's a good description of what a solid, Bible-preaching, Bible-teaching church ought to be like. Uh, there ought to be a steadfastness. There ought to be a, a, a testing of the Spirit. There ought to be uh, an examination of Scripture on things that are taught. And people who come and say, I'm a, I'm a person uh, who can teach the things of God. And we compare them and say, well, are they teaching the Bible or are they not? And, and a, a church that has some, some discretion about it and some wisdom about it from God's Word. And we begin to look at these things that are listed in verse number 2 and verse number 3. And we say, that's a great church. In fact, I could be a member of a church like that. But he goes on to make this statement in verse 4. And this is what I want us to think about and consider today. He says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first... What's the next word here? Love. Does not condemn them for their works. Condemns them for their love. He says, Remember therefore from whence thou art, what's the next word here? Fallen. You know that when God was writing these words, when Christ gave these words to the church at Ephesus, that he did not look at their failure in the area of living their life and their works as being fallen. He looked at the loss of their first love. It's interesting to me that when Christ deals with this topic, He's dealing here not so much with what they were doing, but with why they were doing it. 
their motive, what was behind, what was driving them to live this way. Last several weeks we've taught and we've preached on some, some things that deal with uh, the way we ought to live our lives, the works of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit. And can I, can I tell you this? My great fear in teaching sometimes on those issues is that this idea of our motivation will be lost. The biblical reason why we should be doing these things will be lost. We begin to teach these things and we understand that in order to please God, we need to live a righteous and a holy life. Which, by the way, the Bible does teach. Amen? We are to live pleasing to Him. We are to separate and, and come out from among the world and not have the things of the world brought into our lives or into our church. And the Bible teaches that very clearly. But if we do it only because we are worried about going through the motions of it or we're only worried about what some other Christian is going to think about us or we're only doing it because we're worried about that church down the road that teaches and preaches the same thing that we are uh, friends with or associated with, then it becomes an issue of pride. It becomes an issue of ego. It becomes an issue of I'm living this way simply because I want men's approval. We've got to be so careful of this. I, I certainly do not want to give the idea today, and uh, there is no doubt that the Bible is very stringent, very strong on the Christian living in such a way that we are pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ. That we bring glory to Him. That we are not a reproach to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll be real frank, you don't have to live, go very far and look very far in the day we live to find churches and even Christians and those that name in the name of Christ who certainly are a reproach to the things of God. They bring worldliness into the church. They bring worldliness into their lives. They live just like the world does. I was thinking this week, uh, I was reading some things on, um, on music and, and church music, and um, I had come across uh, some things that, that started a thought in my mind. I remember... Back in the 60s and the 70s, I remember the 70s because I was born in the 70s, but I remember the battle that was fought in the 60s and the 70s many times in our churches over the idea of bringing worldly music but godly lyrics. We call it contemporary music or they called it Christian rock or things like this. And the argument that was made so often was uh, I, I, we need to identify with these people so that we can relate to them and they'll listen to our message. And can I tell you this, I don't find anywhere in Scripture where God tells us to go and join ourselves to the world in order to win the world. But what I do find is over and over and over again, He tells us that we're to come out from among them and be separate and touch not the unclean thing. And then we're to go reach the world. And if I'm going to do the, 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 the work of God, I want to make sure that I'm using the right method and the right uh, uh, means to be able to accomplish the work of the Lord. I want to do it the way the Bible tells me to do it. But if I'm going to worry about my methods being biblical, can I encourage you in this? We also need to make sure that we make certain that our motives are also biblical. Look with me, if you will, in the book of... Hold your place. We're going to be back in Revelation in just a moment. But if you will, look with me in, in the book of Galatians. <clears throat> Galatians, if you will. And let's go to chapter number 1. Look down with me, if you will, to verse number 10. Paul writes this. He says, For do I now persuade men 
or God, or do I seek to please men? Boy, isn't that the question of the hour? As we look around in our churches, I was appalled just even recently. I was telling a fellow here recently, we were talking about some things, and I was appalled recently to hear news of a church that I love and that I respect, and one that has been true and biblically sound for generations. And I began to hear some things, and I thought, no, that cannot be true. And then I did some research into it and found that, yes, this church is beginning to drift and beginning to move. And the reason was there were some people that were pressuring some things. There were people inside the church telling the pastor, we need to do this or we need to do that. And they began to, 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 to change the, the things of that church, the things that they'd always taken a stand on, the things that they'd always been scriptural about and said, we want to obey this book. They now said, I want to make sure that I'm not offending these people. And they began to change some things in their church, and it broke my heart. Men that I respected, churches that I looked up to, that began to bring things into the church that had no business being there. Why? Why? I believe it was because they began to lose their first love. Their motive in doing what they did was no longer to please Him. It now became to please them. In Galatians 1, he says, Do I now persuade man or God? Can I encourage you in this? That ought to be the question of every one of our hearts. As we live day by day, I ought to ask that question every day and often. Am I trying to please men or am I trying to please God? Am I trying to follow what meets the approval of people in this generation? Or am I trying to follow this book and make it a part of my life? Am I trying to live by this thing? I'd far rather listen to what God tells me to do in my life. As much as I love each and every one of you, I'll be real frank with you. I don't care one bit what you tell me I ought to do with my life if it's not in agreement with this book. And that ought to be the attitude of every single one of us. I don't care what the church down the road thinks of me. I was talking to a pastor this week. He brought something up. He said, there are people that look at Keith Heights Baptist Church and this is what they have a problem with. I said, brother, they're just going to have to have a problem with it because that's something I believe we're right on and we're scriptural on. I'm sorry, I'm not going to change to make them happy because the only one we're trying to please is the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 2, Ephesus. If you looked at Ephesus, if they were in existence today, they were here in, Keith, in, in, in uh, Festus, Missouri, and you went and visited and you sat in the pews of that church and you were to look at all the things about that church, the heart, of, the, the, the idea of, uh, of their people and the works that they were doing, the, the, the ministries that they had, I don't think you'd find a fault that was too great that you wouldn't say, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be a member here. I think you'd look at it and say, this is a solid New Testament Baptist church. But God looked at him and said, you're falling. Because you've left your first love. By the way, can I encourage you in this? When our love begins to wane, when we fail to do it for the right motive, it's not very long before the works begin to follow. Even though we may have held true and we've been steadfast, if the heart is not right, the works will soon follow. We'll begin to start creeping in things into our 
our ministry, we'll begin to say, well, you know, that church over there is doing it. And it's really working. Boy, look at how many people they got. And after all, isn't that our whole purpose here, to try to get as many people in the pews as we can? No, that's not our purpose. Our purpose is to take the people who do come here that God brings here and to teach and to preach the Word of God for the purpose of doctrine, for the purpose of reproof, for the purpose of correction, and for the purpose of instruction and righteousness. Our purpose as a church is not to, not to go out here and build the largest church, but to cause the people that sit in these pews to grow as much as they possibly can in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if the church down the road thinks that we ought to do things a different way, and it's contrary to this book, they're just going to have to think that because we're not going to do it here. We're just not. We're not going to change things that are contrary to the Word of God. We're not going to bring the world in. I was reading on this thing of church music, and the, the author of this particular article was talking about the, the benefits and how much it so helped reaching more people with the gospel by changing just a little your church music, causing people to come because of the music, coming, causing people to, to, to get a crowd. And they said, then once you have them there, then you can teach and you can preach the Bible to them. It's beginning to allow the world to creep in. It's beginning to allow things that, that are contrary to the things of God to creep into a church. Oh, that we've got to be so careful of these things. He does not condemn Ephesus for their works. He condemns them for the loss of their first love. And I want you to notice what he goes on to say here. In verse number 4, he says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. So we've seen their works are good but they've left their first love. Now notice what he says here, and it is not a contradiction of Scripture. I want you to understand what he's saying here. Remember, therefore, verse number 5, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do thy first what? Thy first works. He wasn't condemning the works they were doing, but they weren't the same as the first works that they had. You remember the day you got saved? You remember how excited you were? You remember how God stirred your heart and there was a fervency for God, there was a desire for things of God, and you, you, you went to the pastor or you went to the Sunday school teacher and you couldn't do enough. You volunteered for everything. If they needed somebody to, to scrub the parking lot with a toothbrush, you'd volunteer and bring a case of toothbrushes with you. I mean, it just you, you were that excited about being saved. And, and there was a zeal there. There was not just the works themselves, but there was works that were motivated by love for God. And what he was saying here is, you're not lacking in the works. You're lacking in doing those works the way you did when you first did them. You're lacking the love that used to be there, that, that motivation, that, that desire to please God. I love this about this church. And you say, well, <clears throat> this church, you know, they... They, how do you know that they had uh, standards? How do you know they were a right church? I'm going to cheat for some of y'all here because I gave you homework last Wednesday night. And I'm going to go ahead and give some of it to you so you, you don't even have to look it up now. But I want you to notice this. He says uh, in verse number 6, But thou, this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Uh, this is a church that practiced separation I mean, that's a church that lived above and beyond in, in every aspect. You say, well, who are the Nicolaitans? Hold your place here for a moment. Turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter number 6. 
Acts chapter number 6 and verse number 5. Let's go back to verse number... Uh, let's go to verse number 1. We'll, we'll delve into it here. And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring among the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report. Notice these qualifications. Look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip of Prochorus, and Nicanor, uh, and Timon, and Parmenas, and notice this, and Nicholas, and notice these two words, a proselyte of Antioch. Nicholas, this, this deacon that was chosen in the book of Acts, one of the men that were originally chosen as the, the first deacons, and there's a, 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 an insert, a description of this man that was not there with any of the others. And that was that he was a proselyte of Antioch. Antioch was a, a pagan city and, and was steeped in the occult. It had, uh, at the time that the apostles were there and were teaching and preaching, they had a temple to Diana, the, the, uh, uh, um, uh, the goddess that they were worshiping in that city. There was a lot of ties to the occult and some of the satanic rituals and things that were involved with that worship. And you have, I don't encourage anybody to go and study all of those types of things, but rest assured, the study of this particular false god had a lot of connections with the things of the occult. <clears throat> this man had converted, he was a proselyte. He had converted not only from the idea of Diana, but according to some of the ancient. Uh, historians who knew and wrote about uh, this particular man, Nicholas, uh, said that he had converted from uh, the worship of Diana to Judaism, and then later on he converted from Judaism to Christianity. And this man seemed to be one who kind of went with whatever was being taught at the time. He began to teach some things, and uh, historically that they were uh, to uh, allow uh, there to be not not a division but a coming together, a uniting between the religion of Christianity and the paganism of worshiping Diana. And he believed that they could coexist and that they could co-mingle. By the way, we live in a day where a lot of churches, a lot of religions say, uh, we don't want to take away what you're worshiping, we just want to add to it ours. A number of years ago I had an opportunity to go down uh, to uh, Haiti and do uh, several missions trips, quite a few mission trips down there. And uh, it was amazing to me as we would travel through the towns how many buildings and vehicles would have Jesus or, or Christos on it or Emmanuel or Jehovah on it. And they were a very, very religious sounding people. And I began to talk to the missionary who was there at the time. He's a dear friend of mine, Brother Ludovic Lewis. And I said, Brother, these, these folks are very religious people, aren't they? He said, Oh, no, no, no. He said, what happened is a number of years ago, a, a particular denomination came in to uh, evangelize, if you will, uh, the island. And he said, rather than tell them, he said, our, our, our practice, our worship at back then was voodoo. It was devil worship. And he said, there's a lot of reality to these types of things. And 
He said, rather than come in and say, you've got to leave that religion behind and turn to this religion of Christ, he said they came in and they began to intermingle their religion with voodoo. He said, while we have all of these names of God on things, he said, don't, don't be misunderstood. He said the predominant religion here is still voodoo and demon worship. Here's a man who historically was for uh, merging of Christianity with the idolatrous and even the occult nature of the worship of Diana. And it was said of the church at Ephesus, and so what Nicholas was doing, what the Nicolaitans did, was they were trying to bring into the church the things of the world, the things of the city, the cultural things. One of the big sins, one of the great sins of that particular worship of Diana was the sin of immorality and fornication and sexual impurities that would take place. And they would bring that into the church and say it's acceptable. It's acceptable. My Bible doesn't say that. My Bible tells us that there's supposed to be a purity among God's people. My Bible says that we're to keep ourselves from those things. That we're not to even allow those temptations to come into our hearts and into our lives. There's to be a, 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 a complete and utter separation from them. By the way, uh, there is no, there is no uh, place at all in Scripture that says that we have to allow the homosexual movement to pastor our churches. It's not going to happen. Not here. You say, Brother Greg, that's hate speech. You know what? If a, if a person that was involved in that sin came and said, I'm a sinner and I need to trust Christ as my Savior, I'll do my best to lead them to Christ. Not because I, I don't hate them, but I hate the, the sin and things that they're doing. I can't stand them. They're contrary to Scripture. They're contrary to Bible. And this was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. We're just going to let them come in. We're going, to, we're going to bring in what the world thinks, and we're going to merge them with what the church thinks. In fact, a few, a few verses later, as we get down in chapter number 2, he deals with the church of Smyrna and uh, has a lot of really good things to say about them. And then he begins to deal with the angel of the church at Pergamos in verse number 12. And I want you to notice here. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, there it is again, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold, notice this, the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication, so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. God, God didn't say He hated the Nicolaitans. He said He hated the thing that they did, the works that they did. He couldn't stand it. He couldn't stand that they were bringing it in. And he, he actually condemns the church at Pergamos. He says, you guys are tolerating this. You're allowing these things to come in. You say, Brother Greg, how do you know that this is worldliness coming into the church? Because of the context of the passage. In the verse right above it, he deals with the idea of what Balaam and Balak did. They conspired together. If you'll remember the story, uh, the king came to, uh, uh, came to uh, Balaam and said, I'll, I'll give you a sum of money if you will curse the nation of Israel. 
He was wanting the money and he was wanting the, the, the notoriety and the, the recognition that would come from all of that. But God stopped him. Remember that? He was on his way. And uh, God put a donkey in the way, didn't he? And for the first time that I know of in history, the donkey spoke to him, didn't he? Told him, listen, you can't do this. You can't do this. So Balaam went back home and dejected about it. But he came up with a thought. He went to the king and he told King Balak, he said, listen, here's what you can do. He said, I can't curse Israel for you. But I'll tell you the next best thing you can do. He says, you need to start infiltrating the nation of Israel by letting your daughters marry their sons. And you let their sons, your sons marry their daughters, and you start getting them to follow your gods. You let them bring your gods into the nation of Israel, and God will judge them. That's what Balaam told Balak to do. And then he goes on to say about the Nicolaitans, can I tell you this, the Nicolaitans were those who thought it's okay to bring in things of the world. It's okay to bring them in. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen to their music. By the way, you say, is music, is music right or wrong? Is, is, is there such a thing as moral music? Absolutely there is. The Bible refers to the right kind of music very, very clearly over and over and over again. And he talks about how the beauty of the music is. And he spends an entire, the largest book of our Bible is a, is a song of psalms. When he talks about being filled with the Spirit, he says, singing to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody, not just the singing, not just the words, but the melody in your hearts to the Lord. The, the music I listen to needs to glorify Him, not me, and not the man performing it. It needs to glorify Him. It needs to cause my heart to be drawn to Him. We've got to be careful. There's, there's a station in this area that I'll be real frank with you. is not a right kind of station for any of our folks to listen to. And some of you may get mad and leave our church over it, but nobody should be listening to Joy 93 FM. It shouldn't happen. They're using worldly music, ungodly music. Music that I don't care how much you think it stirs you, it's stirring something in you, but it's not stirring the Holy Spirit. We've got to be careful of these things. You got to be careful what comes through the eyes. What do we watch? What do we look at? What are we focusing on? What do we allow our hearts to linger on and think about, to meditate upon? What kind of shows do we watch on the television? What kind of things do we look at on the computers? What kind of books do we look at? You say, Brother Greg, that's not going to. That's just affecting me and what I do in the privacy of my own home. That that's not going to hurt anybody. Oh yes, it is. We're beginning to let the, the, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans creep in. We're beginning to let the things of the world creep in. It's not going to be very long before our works, the ones that we were just commended for, God's going to look and say, you've fallen. You've fallen. Your works aren't what they used to be. Oh, that we would be so careful of these things. If there's one thing I could get across in the message today, it would be this. Let's return to our first love. Let's not get caught in this trap of, of trying to live a certain way so that we can get men's approval. I, I'm not trying to live a certain way so I can make you happy. I'm trying to live a certain way so I can make him happy. I, I don't want to bring a reproach to his cause. I don't want to cause anybody to look at my life 
and hear me say, I love this book, and hear me say that this is my sole authority of faith and practice, and then to see me intentionally and willingly living in a way that is contrary to it. Why? Because this is my first love. The day I got saved, something happened in here. And there are times that I lose some of that zeal. And there are times I lose some of that desire and that fervency. There used to be an expression years ago and people knew what it meant, but we used the expression grit in your crawl to bear down with your teeth and just put the effort in. Boy, when I got saved, I wanted to do right. And I just didn't matter what Satan did to me. I, I, was going to, I was going to live for God. And I was going to do what was right. And I was going to do what was pleasing. You know how many times we've come to altars and we've committed ourselves and said, Lord, I'm going to change this area. I'm going to make sure I live right in this area. I'm going to give this up. And for a while we do good. And then we begin to wane in that area again. Not because our works have suffered, but because our first love has suffered. Our motivation to do it has suffered. Our love for Him has suffered. And we are living in a day where we are bearing the fruit of now generations of God's people who have done the works, but they have left their first love. And as such, the works began to dwindle. And the deeds of the Nicolaitans begin to infiltrate, begin to come into our works, into our ministries, into our lives. We're living in a day where there needs to be a revival of God's people once again to say we're going to stand for truth and we're going to stand for right and we are not going to bring the world into our lives. It may mean we have to get rid of some things. When I know I've got a weak area in my life that I struggle in, I try to remove the things that would be tempting to me in that area. Sometimes we may have to say, you know, I've battled with looking at things or I've battled with listening things to things that I shouldn't. I've thought about things or I've read things that I shouldn't. Maybe you need to get rid of them. You sell them, get rid of them. I remember years ago, I was probably, I think about five, I think I was at kindergarten, maybe five years old, maybe six years old, maybe. My mom and dad had a small 13-inch black and white television set with two antennas and a lot of aluminum foil. No remotes. I was the remote, you know. And it was black and white. Little bitty thing. I remember sitting on the van. I can still picture it in my mind's eye. I can see it. We would sit on the edge of Mom and Dad's bed. We'd watch this thing. And I, we only got one channel out of West Palm Beach, Florida, which was way down south of us, and barely got it. And it had snow and fuzz in the picture. And the only shows I ever remember watching when I was that age was was probably Andy Griffith. And uh, I remember one night. I was so engrossed in the television. Here I am, five years old, six years old. My mom and dad drifted off to sleep, and it must have been midnight or one in the morning. 
they wake up, and I'm sitting there on the edge of the bed. And I'm looking at a TV. They quit broadcasting at 10 o'clock. And the bars came on the screen and the little snow, you know what I'm talking about? I'm sitting here watching snow for an hour on the TV. I remember doing that. I'm not, I'm not joking with you on that. I did that. I remember coming home from school one day, and it wasn't very long after that. And I got off the bus, and here sits our television in the trash pile. I don't know what my mom and dad saw, and I don't know if maybe it was because I was sitting there so engrossed by it that bothered them. I, they never told me. I don't know if maybe it was Andy Griffith. You say, Andy Griffith, that's a clean-cut show. Yeah, but he taught, he taught that there were times that lying was okay. And apparently back then, that was in the Bible that it wasn't. I don't know if it's in the Bible now anymore or not, because they've changed our version so many times. But I still use the one my mom and dad used, and I found it in there. And the TV ended up on the trash pile. Well, Brother Greg, that's a little extreme, don't you think? No. I grew up without television in our house. I was a senior in high school. Senior in high school before there ever came a television back in our house, and the only thing it was used for was to hook a computer up to it to operate a computer. You say, well, boy, didn't that squelch your personality? Not a bit. Well, some of you, that's not me for me to answer. I guess that's for y'all to answer. It not affected me at all, you know. Can I tell you this? I am so thankful my mom and dad raised me that way. There were things that my friends had to battle and still battle in their lives that I, I never had to battle them. wasn't a problem. wasn't a struggle. Why? Because mom and dad were real careful about what we saw, what we heard. Places that we went. People that we hung around. Why? Because they wanted to make sure that as I was growing up and in those formative years, I made sure they wanted to make sure that I was trying to, to be influenced by this Word and by their instruction as my parents rather than by a television set and worldly philosophies. And I know that's not popular preaching today. And I know there are probably even folks that may sit in this room today and say, Pastor, that's you're meddling. You're getting into things that you ought not to do. That's why we're in the problems we're in today. Because too many people have said, I'm not going to teach on those things. We've got to be so careful. I, I'm, I, trust me, I, I know you guys know my heart. I don't ever teach on stuff like this to be mean-spirited. I don't. My heart is to be right with God. In my life, and my desire is that you will in yours. We're not always going to succeed at it. I know that. But that doesn't mean we just throw our hands up and not try. We do the best we can. And if we fail one time, we don't stop and give up and say, well, there's no use. We dust ourselves off and we say, I'm doing it again. I'm going to recommit again. I'm going to do it right. I'm going to get back to not just doing works. I'm going to get back to that first love I had at doing those works. I want to make sure that I'm doing them for His sake. And when God corrects me from this book, I'm not going to throw it down and storm out of my room and pout. I'm going to turn around. And I'm going to hug his neck. And I'm going to say, thank you. Because even though I don't like it, 
glad that you let me learn these things from your word. We live in a day where Christians don't even know how to respond oftentimes. I've never, I've never made the claim that I've always responded appropriately in my life. There's been times I haven't. But all oh, that we would, we would respond according to God's Word. And maybe, maybe get some things out of our lives that ought not be there. And maybe put some things into our lives that ought to be there. You say, well, are we doing that so we can pat ourselves on the back and be a church that people look at and say, well, they, they have high standards? No, that's, that's, that, that is not the issue at all. The reason we want to do it is because we want to please Him. And we do not want to bring a reproach to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand together, shall we, with heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, we're so thankful for Your Word. We pray that You'll bless and use the time that we've spent here together. And Lord, I understand there are people who say, well, I don't see the Bible that way. Or I don't think that that passage means those things. But Lord, the truth is, I think the main issue is that we love You with all of our hearts. That we return to our first love and then look at Scripture with the love that we ought to have for You and with the understanding of the love that You have for us and allow those things to help us understand the truths, the standards, the principles of Scripture that You long for us to live by. Lord, we are living in a day that has become so vile and so immoral that we accept things now that we would have never accepted 20 years ago or 30 years ago. They've even become commonplace among some of your people, things that uh, 50 years ago were frowned upon and were considered deviant even in society. And now Christian people are embracing them and saying, oh, they're acceptable. Lord, may we come back to your word. May it be our standard, not the approval of men, not the, not the pleasing of society. But Lord, may we have one desire and one desire only, and that is to love You. To do it because it is pleasing to You. To obey Your Scripture because You've loved us and because we love You. Help us to make these commitments, these decisions that need to be made so often in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. With heads bowed, lies closed. We're going to have the piano play through. Uh, some invitation songs. And if God's spoken in your heart, perhaps you'd come to the altar. It's available for you if you'd like to, or you need to pray or kneel at your seat. That's fine. But are we living in such a way that not only are we doing the works, but we're doing it with our first love? We're doing it to please Him. We're doing it because the most important thing to us is not what my friends think or my pastor thinks or this church thinks, but